Hey friends, how's everyone doing? I've just broken my uh, airplane mode so that I can come live and give you a quick race update. Check this view out. This is the Granite Dells. So I've literally raced all day, all night, and half the morning to get to this point. See those mountain ranges in the distance over there? I crossed over them last night, just under 70 miles in. Feel it pretty good. Like legs definitely got pretty trashed coming down that mountain. So the funny thing was like on the mountain, um, like the climb up was just intense. Like yesterday was just a day of climbing and climbing and climbing. And it's the roughest running I have ever done in my life. I'm gonna, not gonna lie, like I have never run a course like this before. All right, so here we are with episode 27 of the Florida Trail Runners podcast. This is that part two episode I was talking about last time. And we are talking to C. Sawyer in his epic Coconut 250 journey. He's the man you saw out there running barefoot, but he also wears the Luna sandals, which really do help him have a connection to the course. He took a DNF this year, but as part of that journey, it wasn't really a DNF in his perspective. It was really just an early finish. As boundaries were broken, a new spirit within himself was born, a new sense of calmness, a new mindset, and a new sense of self and being. And of course, like that's something that, that's why we do some of these long races. So we chat for about 20 minutes about barefoot running, you know, connecting to the course, you know, the earth around us, that type of thing. And then we really just jump right into the Cocodona course and how his race went. So I'm coming into day three, but this is my second sunrise on the course and I can finally see the Coconino Plateau. So everything else back there is now behind me, thankfully. Uh, I'm getting really tired. So I've slept. Uh, four, five, five and a half hours in the last three days um, since 10 a.m. or since 7 a.m. Monday morning. And, you know, just kind of plodding on one foot in front of the other right now. My lips are really cracked. I'm having a hard time talking. Uh, I just broke down. It's just a lot of shit coming out. Just dealing with stuff, you know? And uh, just feeling very isolated. It's just hitting me today. So that's where I'm at. I'm gonna leave it at that. I'll catch you all soon. Hey, brother. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Good stuff. So, hey, I guess you know we'll start it off with you know a little bit about yourself and where you've lived with Australia and Florida and kind of how you started even getting into running. Cool. Yeah. So. My name's C. Sawyer, and I'm obviously Australian by birth, uh, born and raised in, uh, well, born in Sydney and raised on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland. And uh, since then, I've lived in various spots around the world and now currently living in uh, just north of Tampa in Florida, um, but literally just sold my house two weeks before Cocodona and have... Um, you know, two weeks now to get packed and, and move out. And we're going back to RV life, which is something that my wife and I did 
for 18 months before we bought here in Florida. Quite done with being a homeowner, to be honest. I'm looking forward to being full-time van life again and just being able to be in all the beautiful places, going to races, having my home with me, like racing straight out of my home, not having to worry about suitcases and, <laughs> you know, hire cars and all that kind of nonsense. Yeah, for sure. And too, because now, I mean, right now you get like the max, <laughs> crazy amount of money for your house too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we've literally doubled that in three years. Or it's like the exact opposite. I just bought a house and now putting down... I think around 12 different type of like produce trees of mm -hmm. the house. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, if you're, if you're in your place, like if you're in, in your forever home, that's, or, you know, long-term home anyway, that's, that's definitely uh, not a bad thing to do. Yeah. We just, we haven't found that place for ourselves yet. You know, like Florida's <laughs> cool. It's nice on the beaches. It's, it's just not uh, like we, we like mountains and freezing lakes and stuff like that. <laughs> So, you know, in terms of me with my ultra running background, I've been running ultra marathon for 20 odd years easily. Um, running is my first memory. You know, when I was a tiny little kid, I remember being in the playground at school and it was on the side of a hill, the back, the back oval. And for some reason, I just started running, running laps of the oval. And at first I was just shuffling along and I just felt really good just to be running up the hill, along the top, down the other side, along the bottom and just kept doing lap after lap. Pretty soon all the other kids in the playground had stopped what they were doing and they were watching and cheering and seeing how far I could go and encouraging me to go on. And I think it was about 20 laps, 21 laps. And I remember a teacher came over and told me to stop, you know, like, all right, you've done enough. You've had your fun. This is, this is where we're calling it quits. You're going to hurt yourself. So, <laughs> I couldn't have been much older than, you know, five or six at the time. So running was just something that was there for me. It was it was just always there. And I'm, I'm currently writing a book. It's my – it'll be my third published book, and it's called um, The Primal Way. And it's all – like there's a huge part of this backstory and, you know, how I would frequently put myself into controlled pain so that I could – grow as uh you know a person in that pain body but also grow as a, a runner and be able to go further and further and push myself into that space I, I ended up going through a period of real darkness in my life and i went out into the australian deserts and i was just running around barefoot and screaming at the wind and that, you know at that point that's when I, I kind of really started connecting with those primal forces within myself from there i went up to northern thailand and lived with a hill tribe for uh, a few months and again just running around barefoot shirtless in the in the jungles and it, it was just those experiences started to really heal me from that that you know that darkness within my life and so I recognized that that was necessary part of moving forward in true health and wellness in my life so yeah that's that's kind of like the history of it I, I very quickly when I left school you know, I joined the military, much like yourself, and um, that kind of put a, a, a dampener on my running, as funnily enough, like we would we'd run for fitness. But running the distances I wanted to run wasn't really a military thing. So when I got out, I went back to it and I got into, you know, adventure racing and multi-day adventure racing. And 
just the, the running was always my favorite part you know we would transition from mountain biking or kayaking and as soon as we were back on our legs i felt i felt good i felt like i was home so i just transitioned out of the adventure racing and more back into ultra marathon you know just the big distances i wasn't relying upon a team i didn't have other people that i had to keep moving it was just me and that, that kind of worked well for me there was, you know, no accountability to anybody but myself, and I just really loved that. So I did maybe 12 years ago in Australia. I was running 100 milers and did a handful back then, and then I uh, attempted a run across the Tanami Desert in Australia, which was um, a 650 miles, just over a thousand kilometer stretch of desert, and got maybe halfway through that before we just logistically the wheels fell off you know just support wasn't organized enough and I, I didn't really have any idea of what i was doing with event planning to that level to run for myself so didn't succeed with that but it wasn't because of my running it was just because of logistics and support and so that kind of burnt me out quite a lot and then i took a break for about seven years and I've come back to it since arriving in in the States during that seven-year period. I've come back to ultra running, and that's kind of where you met me. You know, I uh, started doing my hundreds again. I, I did long haul in January and just feeling really good with it. And that brings us right to where we are now. You know, I just decided to throw in my hand at doing a, a 250-miler, which was the Cocodona 250 out in Arizona. And I'm sure we're going to talk all about what happened out there. But uh, <laughs> that's where we're at. I know I absolutely love the distance. I love the 200-plus mile distance. Just got some work to do to make myself a little more capable with it. Because, yeah, like with that transition, when did you start doing the, uh, the barefoot running? Yeah, so that was, that was something that took place um, during that seven-year gap when I was burned out from that attempted run across the Tanami Desert in Australia. I, at one point... I wasn't running at all. And at one point I just, I decided to go for a run. I was like, I remember that I loved running. So there, there had to have been some run left in me. And so I just decided one day to go for a run. I didn't warm up. I didn't put any gear on. I didn't put any headphones in. I didn't carry water. I didn't do anything. I just literally wearing a pair of shorts with no shoes, no shirt, just went out the front door and started running. And I ran around the block and I was on street, like I was on pavement at that stage, and it felt good. And then I found this dirt trail. So I went down this dirt trail, and I found myself changing the way I was running to accommodate, like, my, my sore feet because, like, my feet were tender baby feet back then. You know, I was used to wearing shoes everywhere. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm changing to, to kind of baby my feet on this rocky dirt trail a little bit. Uh, but what it did was it changed the way I was moving, and what, the way I was moving felt – a lot more primal it felt you know like i was connecting more to i guess you know like a tribal way of moving you know i was i was more in sync with the patterns of everything around me and i i couldn't have articulated that at the point all i could have said was i felt like a fucking gladiator <laughs> and so i decided to stay with that you know i needed to know more about this i hadn't felt this feeling before and i needed to know more about it i felt lighter on my feet i felt more connected i felt more primal i felt like i was part of this like larger tribe of humanity that was part of the earth and so that's where it began for me and it, it took quite a lot of time going to and fro like going back to shoes 
without really understanding the concept of, you know, a drop or toe box or, you know, anything like that, I would go back to shoes that I was used to and then I would leave the shoes off and then I would go and buy a pair of shoes that had, you know, almost no padding on them, which, you know, now we know of as minimalist shoes, you know, barefoot shoes, and then I would go back to completely barefoot. And then I started toying with the idea of sandals. And and this was actually long before I had heard of the Tarahumara, the Raramuri tribe, or, you know, before I had read Born to Run, Christopher McDougall or any of that. I was just, I had seen a guy at a race that I was in as I was starting to come back to racing and he was wearing sandals and the idea captivated me. I'm like, you could do this in sandals. I didn't even know that. I didn't know that was possible. I'm always wearing shoes with gaiters and long leggings and protecting myself to the utmost. And there's this guy wearing shorts and sandals and nothing else. Like this is epic. I want to, I want to know more about this. So when I started digging, that's what led me to born to run and barefoot Ted and, you know, the entire Raramuri way. And I kind of realized sandals are a great ally when we're doing what we do, as I found in Cocodona, you know, more than half of what I did was done in sandals, but there had to have been a way to get our feet into a state where we could do it true barefoot, no matter what we were coming up against. And that's kind of where I'm really plowing into now. Part of that, like that barefoot connection, you know, being part of the earth. But I guess it's also twofold, right? Like you have the biomechanics and kind of a, a battery recharge. I, completely, you know, I think it's, look, there's, there's been a couple of times. So I work, I work quite a lot in sacred space, like shamanically with various um, sacrament plant medicines. And when I was in sacred space one night, I was working with a particularly hard opening plant medicine. And at one point I felt this overwhelming urge, like I started to, to hear this almost like a repetitive vibration in my head. It was just like a boom, 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 boom. And I was like, what is that? And it wasn't something that was being like, my wife couldn't hear it. No one else could hear it. And I was hearing it quite viscerally in my ears. And I decided, all right, I need to go outside and explore what I'm, what I'm, feeling what i'm hearing here so i went outside got my bare feet into the dirt and in in like into the earth on the in the backyard and then i started moving my feet and as i was moving my feet in conjunction with the beat that i was hearing inside of myself i started kind of like it was almost like a little dance shuffling from foot to foot but i started feeling this energy coming back up through the earth now science hasn't managed to quantify or validate the, the concept of grounding you know they, they call it quackery or pseudoscience it doesn't exist to them yet because they're not able to measure it but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist and i'm a firm believer that just because science can't map something doesn't mean it's not real it just means we haven't developed instruments delicate or soft enough to be able to pick up or sensitive enough to pick up on that but i was definitely feeling this charge of energy every single time and the, and the more i was shuffling my feet on the earth the stronger the charge was getting to the point where my legs started to vibrate and it came all the way up through my torso into my heart and into my head and my arms and my whole body was literally vibrating and it all started with this funny little beat that I was hearing. And what I came to recognize was what I was hearing, this frequency, this beat was, uh, it was almost like a representation of the earth's resonance, the Schumann frequency. And when I started moving in coordination with it, it was giving me a lot of charge. And so even though when we're, you know, not altered in shamanic sacred space, 
we're, we're just, you know, we're fully conscious. We're getting about our lives. Our brains are in like a standard beta brainwave. We're still able to access that. We just don't feel it or hear it the way that I was both feeling it and hearing it in that state. So when we run barefoot, we're doing the same thing. It's this, this repetitive pattern on the earth and I firmly believe that's what the process of, that we refer to as grounding is. You know, we're, we're being given this electrical charge because the earth is a battery and we are a battery. We're just a smaller version of it. And we get that charge from the earth. That's, that's my take on it. I know every time I go out running barefoot, it doesn't matter how far I go. I come back feeling more charged than when I left. Yeah. And too, with like, with evolution of human, the early, our ancestors never had like, thick shoes or they never went out of their way to make something super comfortable it was like a natural um they would do a very minimalist to the sandals that they wore or they went barefoot it's kind of a natural stride to that kinetic chain yeah exactly and you know the whole concept of having a leather on leather footbed it's skin so it's it's grounding directly to the earth you know i know there's gimmicky stuff out there like earth runner sandals i don't have a very high opinion of them because of my personal experience with them i'm sure they're great but it's just my personal opinion but they've got that copper plug in the toe that allows for this whole process of grounding you know if you um if you have a, a sandal that has a leather lower and a leather upper and you're standing on it it's basically skin on skin on earth and you're going to get that same grounding effect it's when we're standing on thick layers of foam and rubber that you could basically grab a live wire and it's not able to ground through you <laughs> like it's your, your shoe your shoes are insulated you yeah that's true too <laughs> so I, I guess with bare, barefoot running because a lot of people are so new to that concept or really just it's such an alienating thing that they never have thought about right how do, how, how do you start training to go barefoot slowly uh i mean there's so many things in in the lower kinetic chain and you know not even mentioning your feet that need time to adapt to this you know because your entire musculature and your entire connective tissue the like the whole kinetic chain from your waist down and then you know what happens above that you know, into your your hips and your lower back and all the way up into your shoulders and head it's reliant based on the, this uh predictability of what you've created for yourself so if you're used to wearing shoes with, you know, like an 18 millimeter drop and you've got all this padding and it, it's predictable, your kinetic chain is used to that predictability. So if you were to take that and just remove it completely, all of a sudden your body has to go through a lot to adapt really fast. And that's where you get people saying, I tried to go barefoot and I ended up with this hurting and that hurting. And, you know, there are things that hurt, like your Achilles, when you've got a, a significant like heel drop um if your heel is lifted inside of a shoe it's taking a lot of stress off the achilles as an example when you go barefoot you're putting a lot more strain on the achilles tendon and so you you can very easily end up if you go barefoot too fast too quickly with problems like achilles tendonitis or heel bursitis or you know all kinds of issues back through that uh, that connective tissue in the lower back of the leg and I've had my fair share of it. You know, it's very tricky to manage. But as long as you do it slowly and sensibly, you listen to your body every step of the way and you don't try to rush it for, an, you know, an egoic purpose. Like you, you don't want to say, hey, look at me, I'm barefoot. Look how far I can run barefoot. Look what I can achieve barefoot. It's the same as the Wim Hof method. People are forcing shit. You know, they 
hop in the cold for too long and they end up with chill blades. <laughs> you know, it's the same <laughs> thing. You take your shoes off and you want to show the world how badass you are by running barefoot and then you end up hurting yourself. There's no medals for being barefoot. Like I can tell you that it is a harder path. There is trails out there that are much easier to run with shoes on. Minimal shoes, cool. Choosing to go true barefoot is a calling, you know, and I, I firmly believe that it's part of our de-evolutionary response going back to a, like a, a primal root within ourself. The whole crux of the message with, you know, what I'm creating with Earthborn Primalist is that, <clears throat> excuse me, as humans, we have lost our connection to everything. We've lost our connection to the natural world, to one another and to ourselves. And we've done that by seeking comfort and security and safety and protection. And when we start stripping away those layers of comfort and safety and protection, we start reclaiming our place in the natural world. You know, we're not separate to it. We're, we're a part of it. And when we truly embrace ourselves as a part of the cycles of nature, as a part of the elemental forces of the natural world, then beautiful things start happening, not just for us in our personal life, but for the world collectively. The planet's going to be in a much better state courtesy of taking that move. Our relationships with one another, our relationship with ourself, like it's just, it's, it's a necessary step as far as I'm concerned. There's this something for us to be gained by doing so, but it can't be done from a place of ego. Like it has to be done because you're called from a heart level to do it because it's going to take time. You're going to be in shoes sometimes and barefoot sometimes and in minimalist shoes sometimes and in slippers sometimes and wearing trail socks sometimes. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's going to be a process. The body has to get used to it. But to, to kind of more directly answer your question, I would say that the biggest thing is to just get used to how it feels. So if you're used to walking like this, uh, let's say around the block or you've got a trail down from your home and you're used to walking the trail, take your shoes off and feel how it feels to walk the trail. Walk, you know, just get used to walk. If you wear shoes inside your house like some people do, take your shoes off for a few hours and walk around without your shoes on. You're going to start feeling cramps in your feet and lower legs that you didn't know you could get. That's going to happen. When you get those cramps, put your shoes back on. Listen to your body. Go gently. Go easily. Walk on some softer surfaces because that's going to help with increasing the proprioception. You know, it's going to help with the way that your ankles move. You're walking on sand or grass or stuff like that, not a uniform, flat, hard surface. Your feet and ankles are going to have to start moving in different ways. So it's going to develop the muscles in your feet and it's going to start developing the strength of the entire lower kinetic chain. And then when you do start running, you start very slowly and very softly and you find yourself a barefoot running coach that can show you the proper technique to running barefoot because it's not the same as running in shoes. And if you have any doubts, you take a video of yourself running barefoot, you show it to your barefoot running coach and you ask them, what do I need to do to change to make this a healthier stride? And they will break it down and show you how to run more healthful. Yeah, the video thing, that's a good point too, because even if you're lifting, you know, you're, you're taking a video of yourself hitting that clean, where's your body at? What's, what's your body doing? How's your form? But some of that like pain, people always call it pain. Is there a difference between pain and sensation? Like, you know, that sensation feedback? Oh, 100%. There is a huge difference. Something I always say, there's a huge difference between pain and sensation. Now, don't get me wrong. I have a beautiful relationship with my pain body because of the way that I have always explored into it. 
and never shied away from it, always wanted to know more about it. You know, I believe it's one of our subtle energy bodies is the pain body. And I think that we have a lot to gain from having a relationship with it. But again, that has to be done in a healthy way. You, you can very quickly cross lines that make it very unhealthy. So there's a huge difference between sensation and pain. If you feel something in your body at some point because of something you're doing, you need to ask yourself, do I construe this as just a sensation that I'm experiencing or is this hurting? And if it's hurting, there is a reason. Like there, it's giving you a signal. It's, it's, it, it's a system of feedback and that feedback is telling you something. Now, it could be sim as simple as literally adjusting um, the length of your stride. It could be as simple as changing the, the way your foot strikes on the ground. You know, barefoot runners typically strike a lot further forward on the foot. I wouldn't say that it's always 100% um, toe striking. There's times where I change that based on the terrain I'm on. Sometimes I strike on the outside of my foot and really pronate inwards. There's times where I strike on a midfoot and I absorb the weight across my entire foot. There's times where I am completely on my toes. There's times where I bring that back and I strike on the ball of my feet. And there's, you know, being able to feel that out based on the experiences I now have makes a big difference because sometimes some terrains, if I'm striking in one particular way, I get pain. And it's not that anything is necessarily wrong. It's just, it's letting me know you, you need to change the way that your foot's landing at the moment. And as soon as you make a slight adjustment, the pain goes away. Sometimes it's not pain. Sometimes it's sensation. But being able to determine the, the difference between the two is massive. Yeah, and with that, coming into Coconona, I know it was like a six-month process of you kind of just training up your body to even cover that distance in the desert. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I said um, in hindsight, there was literally nothing I felt I could have done in Florida to prepare me for what I faced out there. And I think that that's multifaceted. You know, one, the first one, the first point of that is I had never encountered a race of that distance, single stage before. Yes, I've done stage racing. Yes, I've done multi-day adventure racing. Yes, I tried to run across the Tanami Desert, but I was camping each night. I was, I was starting refreshed each day. I've never encountered a race of that distance before in one go. So I had no real point of reference when it came to when I should be sleeping, when I should be, you know, taking care of things like uh, eating and, you know, just managing being a human in that environment. To me, that, that was the trickiest aspect of the, of the whole thing. And there was really no environment I encountered in Florida that could prepare me for that. So on day one of Cocodona, for example, within the first 30 miles, we're climbing a, a hill that literally put us into thin enough air that was giving some people altitude sickness. You know, that, that's a serious climb. Where, where am I going to find anything in Florida that can prepare me for that? Like there's nothing. The, the Clearwater Bridge can't do that. So we're literally climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing all afternoon into the night and we get to a point where we're you know that the, the hill is just so big and the air is starting to get thin and for, for us sea dwellers sea level dwellers that was serious like that was a serious thing so there was that like the heat wasn't an issue i never at any point had a problem with the heat out there i loved it because i've been training in the heat and humidity i've been doing heat training protocols and following a really rigid you know, 
conditioning plan to get my body adapted to heat before I went out there. So that was not something I had an issue with. The biggest thing for me was just the overall environment of the Cocodona course created a whole bunch of parameters that was well and truly outside of my wheelhouse. You know, I, I had no idea what I was coming up against and I didn't know what I didn't know. Which, yeah, so what kind of goes through your mind when, you know, deciding to take on this kind of race for me it was about wanting to know myself and this was this was one of the points that created an earlier finish line that's what i'm calling it an earlier finish line for me than the actual finish line so i, I dnf'd the race at 167 miles and that that put me at smack bang on about twenty thousand feet of elevation gain and so when I entered the race, I had a couple of things in mind that I wanted to achieve in this race, and I managed to achieve all of them, everything that I set out to achieve. Now, in my mind, yes, I had the finish line and the, the awesome 250-mile buckle in mind. I, I did. I had that in my mind. I wanted to achieve that. But on a heart level, subconsciously, within myself, there was – other things that I was aiming to achieve. And when I when I had hit those points, that's when I realized my race had ended. So for me, the biggest thing was I needed to overcome certain fears I had in myself. I had certain fears about being by myself away from the help of other people in difficult environments. It's something that I've always carried and I've never, I've always shied away from it. You know, when I was living with a hill tribe in Northern Thailand, one night I encountered the same thing and I very quickly scurried back to civilization so that I could be near help if I needed it. Now, medically, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing actually wrong with me. It's, it's a construct of my mind. But in my mind, there's this story that's always been playing that if I'm away from the help of other people, modern civilized society, you know, if I'm away from easy access to a hospital, if something goes wrong, how am I going to get through that? And that's one of the things that I came up against really heavily during Cocodona. And so, and that, that was one of my goals. I wanted to face the deepest fears I held within myself. And I managed to do that. I wanted to know my limitations. I wanted to feel all of the suffering within myself and know that I could push through that suffering. And that's kind of what happened. You know, I got to this point. It was, you know, day three, the, uh, the evening of Wednesday. We're still on the go. I was coming into Sedona and I was hallucinating really badly. Uh, I probably only had like six hours sleep since the whole thing had started Monday morning which is more than some people got. I know that uh, Joe Stringbean only got half an hour on the entire course and still came out like he was as fresh as he started. Um, but for me, I'd gotten four or five hours sleep and, uh, you know, I was coming into Sedona. Um, I, I was really hallucinating very badly, seeing a whole bunch of stuff on the side of the trails that wasn't there. And I was feeling very sick. Like earlier that day, I'd thrown up a couple of times and, I came into Sedona with the idea that, you know, this uh, at this point of suffering within myself, I'm done. Like, I, I'm, I'm not taking another step. I'm going to sleep and then I'm going to wake up and then I'm going to go tell the aid station I'm finished. I'm going to tap out. And I woke up and I went down to the aid station and I ate a breakfast and I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? <laughs> and so I was ready to go again. And that kind of 
started to push me through that wall I had encountered in myself. So I rolled out of Sedona and I, I'd broken the course coming into Sedona um, by about six miles just to get to the aid station because I was in such bad shape. So I had to go back, backtrack that six miles, reacquire the course and then come back into the aid station properly and then head back out again on the course. So I did that. And then as I was leaving Sedona on the outskirts, um, I, I was starting to get really savage stomach upset, like just horrible explosive diarrhea, and I just couldn't keep anything in. And so this is now Thursday. All day Thursday, I had maybe 300 calories for the whole day, and even that you know, just came back out. There was nothing that was going in, nothing that was staying in. And so I kind of just didn't really allow that to become a big issue for me. I just kept pushing, kept moving, got to the Coconino Plateau, started climbing. I made my way up the Coconino Plateau. Um, I met a guy halfway up who was hurting and I, I helped him out and we, we kind of encouraged each other to the top of the plateau. And when we got to the top, we were in the forest and we're just making our way down these big wide forestry trails, just leapfrogging each other. And that's when I came to this point, um, I got to the Schneebly aid station and came out of that and I was feeling really calm. You know, all of that screaming pain and suffering and everything that I had gone through for days now was kind of just gone. And I found myself in this place of incredible calm and I realized I had hit the walls within myself that I had always backed away from. I had faced the fear within myself of being alone and isolated in the wilderness. I had a conversation with myself about it. You know, I remember at one point I was talking to myself, what does other people being there mean for you? Well, it means you're safe. And if you're safe, you're comfortable. So why are you trying to embrace comfort? You're doing something that's the antithesis of comfort. Like you, you, you're being uncomfortable out here. This is what this is. Like embrace that. And I'd punched through all of that. And I came to this place of absolute calm. And in that space of calmness, my body, not my mind, but my body said to me, we've gone far enough. And that's when I messaged um, the race headquarters, uh, the, the command center, and I said, my race is over. I'm done. And I hopped into my um, emergency bivvy and curled up on the side of the trail and lay there until the medics came and got me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess take me into those early miles. So I know you, you started off the race barefoot. You felt strong. You felt great for those first 20 miles. How did that go from that starting line to Whiskey Row? Yeah, so... That first day, um, I got I got the majority of that first day until until nightfall anyway, barefoot, and that felt good. So I was probably like 30, 37, 40 miles up barefoot at that stage, and it felt good. Like my feet were definitely taking a beating on the rocky terrain out there. I'd taken a chunk out of one of my toes and had a little bit of blood, you know, it was, but it was still feeling good, and I got to the like got through the first aid station just fine, cruised out to the out and back, went down to the out, met my crew, got topped up, charged up, switched to night mode, and then came back out. Now, I'd made the decision before the race that night times I was going to wear sandals. And so I switched into my sandals at that stage. And that was because things like the presence of bark scorpions on the trail, like I, I really didn't want to get tagged by something like that barefoot. You know, the sandals just gave me a tiny little bit of extra protection for, for nighttime. And so I was wearing my sandals. Um, 
came back up out of that out and back aid station and you know went back onto the course heading north at this point and when came to the next aid station and the the aid station manager came over and said now i don't want to alarm you but you've probably got um 1500 to 2000 feet of elevation over the next three miles like this isn't this hill is no joke and I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> so um, I, I just I fueled up with some broth and uh, a coffee and it was really cold. I remember it was it was kind of freezing cold at that point. And then I started on up and I was I was plowing up the hill with this um, girl, Tina, who was racing as well. And, and we were just talking the whole way and kind of, you know, just encouraging each other and distracting each other. And we got – you know, close to the top of the pass and then we, we kind of got a little bit separated. I'm, I think she she went ahead and I stopped to take my cold weather gear off or something because I was feeling quite uh, heating up at that stage and then started just a long meander down the other side of that hill all the way into to Prescott to, towards Whiskey Row. And it was early hours of the morning that uh, so I, I saw my crew at the out and back aid station at sunset. Crossing that hill took me until sunrise, and that's you know like early hours of the morning. That's when I came into Whiskey Row, and I, I remember I, I grabbed a quick something to eat, and then I curled up in my sleeping bag on the grass across the street from Whiskey Row, and I was out for about thirty minutes when I heard someone say, well, "We're about to turn the sprinklers on here," so. I had to <laughs> climb out of my bag and, and my crew asked, do you want to go into the sleep station? I'm like, well, now I'm awake now. Let's just grab some food and keep moving. So I went in and I grabbed one of the, the Freak Brothers pizzas that um, Jamal put on for us. And Was that pizza good? I've been watching those, you know, a lot of the Air Viper videos and I know that's their pizza. How good is that pizza? Yeah, it was, I mean, anything's good when you're that far in. To a, a race, and you know you, you've been running all night, but it, it was it was really good anyway. Like it's definitely a pizza I would sit down and enjoy. <laughs> Ate the pizza and got myself sorted, got organised, put my lamps away, and, and headed out. And uh, that was actually one of the, the 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 better mornings that I had out there. I was heading out of Prescott, and Wes Plate was right behind me, and he comes running up and. I'm like, where's, you know, so we, we caught up and kind of ran with each other until we hit the Granite Dells and we, we went into the Dells and I stopped to do a quick live on my Facebook and Wes continued on through the Dells and I, I did my live, took some photos and then continued on into the Dells and yeah, I was f still feeling good. Um, that was a pretty rocky section so I kept my sandals on through that it wasn't until, um, like, so most of that day I was in my sandals because I was, um, you know, getting through um, the, like, all the farmland of uh, Fane Ranch and we were crossing over all the fences and stuff. So at that point I wanted to kind of keep my sandals on because we were on a lot of, you know, long grass and, the, 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 the ground was just an unknown so I kept my sandals on through that and then we were climbing up Mingus Mountain and it was probably the again the early hours of the morning we were coming back down off Mingus Mountain and came into Jerome caught a little bit more sleep at Jerome and then out of Jerome we went down and I made it to Dead Horse caught my crew 
out of dead horse that was when i then went barefoot again and i, I just i got most just like beautiful sand and you know desert trails and that felt amazing so sandals off and i was just plowing through that with um without my sandals on and that, that felt really good and that kind of made up the remainder of the that 60 odd miles i did um barefoot over the course so i know you mentioned the scorpions did you see any other wildlife out there Oh, yeah. So um, as we were coming into, I had my pacer with me through Fane Ranch and up on Mingus Mountain. As we were coming into the uh, the rest station at the top of Mingus, um, we saw a coyote running in the fields just off to our left. And that was kind of cool. Uh, at one point, I saw an elk um, just kind of on the trail it looked at me and then it darted off into the woods big white butt running away so that was interesting um saw a bunch of the bark scorpions coming into sedona uh, and they're, they're cool because they kind of glow with your more with black light i've heard but even just the regular lights like regular um head and waist lamps you kind of see they start to become a little bit luminescent in the night so that was really cool seeing those um and then I, I can't say for sure, but uh, when I climbed into my space bivy after I'd decided to end my race, was lying on a ditch. I was well and truly up in the Coconino Plateau in the forest. Um, I didn't hear it come, but then I felt something sniffing around me, like just kind of checking me out, and then I didn't hear it go. And it gave me the impression that it was a cougar just because of the fact that it was so stealth. I didn't hear any footfall as it came up to me or as it left me. It was just literally there one minute and then gone the next. Yeah, you see any rattlesnakes out there? Yes. Uh, coming out of the Granite Dells, I saw a rattlesnake on the trail. Yeah, a little diamondback. Man, that's cool. Yeah. I guess coming out of Mingus Mountain, how'd that go? Coming off the back of Mingus was uh, interesting. So I, w I had my pacer with me still, which was good. Mike, he was just an absolute champion of a guy. He was He's not even really a runner, and he just was able to just do the job so well. You know, he's just he was just strong, and nothing could bring him down. You know, even when I knew he was hurting, <laughs> I'd be like, you all right? And he's like, I'm good. And he just he, – he refused to add any of his own pain or hurt to mine which was just amazing so we're, we're coming we're coming down off mingus mountain and you know trying to make our way to jerome and we're just seeing the lights of jerome and we're kind of circling all the way around so i didn't see the course in the daylight at that point it was dark so i really had no point of reference but i know we kind of came off mingus mountain dropped down over the edge and then we just were on this trail that just took us on this massive tour all the way around the township of jerome to the other side and you could see headlamps off in the distance. And then when you were around the other side, dropping like down through the old mine into, into Jerome, you could see lamps from where you were way back up on Mingus Mountain. And it was a really, really long descent down into Jerome. Like it, it took a lot of time. It was very technical. There was a lot of rocks, a lot of shale. Our feet were copping a beating like in sandals without toe bo like toe box protection. The feet were just copping off flogging and my sandals have literally an eight millimeter um, footbed and uh, like my feet were pulverized by the time I got down off that to Jerome. I mean, with your feet too, like 
do you get cuts, scratches, or how does that work too? Yeah, definitely. Like you've, you've, there's no protection. Like, so whether you're barefoot or in sandals, there's literally no protection. You know, you, you, you're exposed. So a couple of times, um, one foot would kick up a, uh, like a rock or something and it would just bash into the other foot and it would instantly give me a lot of pain, especially because I got a lot of swelling, like which started on that descent into Jerome, I think from just the constant pulverizing of all the, the little rocks and boulders and shit that we had to scale over and our feet were just constantly in contact with. Um, my ankles started swelling up a little bit, constant articulation on a whole different level than anything I've been able to do here in florida yeah i saw you had buckets of ice out there too yeah i mean so you'd end up with like little cuts and nicks all over different parts of your feet you'd end up with you know a bruise here or there and you know just that swelling in my ankles from my ankles working at 300 percent of what they were used to coming from from jerome now you've got to go to dead horse and deer pass so heading from jerome down to uh dead horse was it was almost like a non-event, you know. It was just like coming out of the town, coming down the hill, more rocks, and then along a couple of straight stretches. And it just it felt like I was in Deer Pass, uh, in Dead Horse really fast. And when I got to uh, Dead Horse, my crew were there. And, like, when, when I was um, at the, the aid station in Jerome, I, I caught, I think it was maybe an hour's sleep in the front seat of the car and, my wife was waking me up and I was frustrated because I wanted to, I wanted more sleep. And she's like, no, you got to get up. Like you got to go. And I got frustrated and I'm like, fuck this. You know, I'm just, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to. And I just, I was a brat. So I, I got up and I got my gear on and I very begrudgingly started trudging out of Jerome and leaving Jerome kind of was a little bit shitty for me, but I got down the hill and that's why I took a video. So I did another live that morning as the sun was coming up. And that's uh, like that, that's the live where I looked like shit. Like I really looked like I was worn out and I felt not much better than the way I looked. And I, I, I ended my live because I was starting to tear up a little bit. I was like, um, I'm emotional. And um, th that's when I really started encountering those walls I was talking about earlier. That's the point where I was really starting to hit them. And that's the point where my mind really wanted to quit the race. And I pushed down into Dead Horse and my crew was there and it was a, a sunny morning and they were cheery and they weren't angry that I'd been shitty with them out of Jerome. And, you know, I got some food into me and I got off my feet and I, I felt I felt a hundred times better. Felt really good. I, I went to full day mode, took all my cold weather gear off. Um, and the, the next leg was a, a beautiful desert crossing like this was like the epitome of what this race was there, there wasn't much up and down it was a, like a lot of it was very flat um you know no real vert no real climbing and it was just awesome desert like this is what i was out there for, to, to race you know this next leg between uh dead horse and deer pass and uh i had so much fun on that section you know it was just um twisting and turning on the trails and you know quite heavily i leaning into my my mapping software because you know there was a lot of twists and turns and the markers weren't always necessarily there and got through it okay um that was the point where so i i normally wear this uh, like a, a necklace with coyote teeth and some beads that i'd made 
um, I decided at that point to uh, to make that as an offering to the desert. So I took it off and wrapped it around some flowers on a cactus that I found and left that there for the desert just to say thank you for, for allowing me to be out there with it. Didn't your cactus at home bloom? Yeah, so I've got a desert rose. Um, that didn't actually start blooming until the day after, till Thursday. But, uh, yeah, the person that I had who was looking after the house and the dogs, she sent photos of just this amazing blooming desert rose. And I've had the desert rose for like two or three years and it hasn't bloomed until that point. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's quite the connection from some type of aspect for that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before I left, I had a really good conversation with my desert rose. You know, I talked to my plants and, uh, you know, just sat there and was present with it and just kind of really felt her, her presence, her energy. And I feel like there was definitely some kind of a connection. There was something that happened at that point, you know, something enabled me to uh, have that experience, you know, at the point where I decided I had finished my race. And then the next thing I see all the, these photos of this amazing blooming desert rose. Yeah. I know you have the necklace, but then you've also got the hat too. So the big hat has special meaning for me. Um, the hat itself you know, it's, it's a cheap Wolfeld hat that I got in Blue Ridge, Georgia, and the, the band that is wrapped around it is uh, hand-woven Navajo beads, very special wow. to me, and I have a really strong connection to, to both the Navajo and Kokopelli and, you know, that, that entire way of life out there in, in Sedona area. Um, so the, the hat itself is particularly special. It allows me to just you know, kind of iconically remain connected to myself in, in a weird sort of way. Huh, wow, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I guess now, so you finally get the deer pass. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling at this point? I was feeling crummy physically. And this is like, this is the point where I was really, really kind of plowing into those walls that I had decided I wanted to push through in my head. So physically and mentally, I'm feeling pretty bad, you know, so... I tried to eat and drink a whole bunch. Um, you know, I, I put down as much food, um, electrolytes gnarly as, as I could. And within probably 10 minutes of putting that all in, I was gearing up and I started to feel really sick. So I took my vest off and then I started throwing up and I just threw up everything I had put in. And I was at this point in my mind hitting these walls. So I'm looking at my crew like, oh, this is the excuse I need to have them say it's okay, just rest more. And they're, they're, they're not doing it. Like my wife who was ready to pace me for the next section into Sedona from Deer Pass, she's still getting ready. She's like, yep, yeah, we're getting ready to go. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like to have some sympathy on me. Like I'm not feeling well. <laughs> and it, it wasn't flying. So – we, uh, we loaded up, I loaded back up, and we head out, and we started making our way up the hill out of Deer Pass. And I don't, know, I don't know how many miles out we were. Like, at this point, I was starting to get fuzzy in my head. Like, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't really there. And I, I, uh, I started um, throwing up again. Uh, like, I, I literally collapsed at that point. I physically just fell over. And I was like throwing up and 
my wife was, you know, she was stern with me. She was like, you've got to get up. You've got to keep moving. You know, I don't have cell service. I can't call for help at this point. And this was like, this was my worst thing. This was my fear. Like, there's no one to help me. And I'm in a really bad situation. Physically, my body's not doing what I want it to do. It's not working the way I want it to work. I'm throwing up everything I'm putting in. And I'm, I'm really hazy. I'm fuzzy. Like, I'm, I'm just not even quite there. And then... I just, I, I feel like I kind of blacked out, but I was lying there and I felt everything just dissolve away. You know, I know ultra runners joking, jokingly refer to it as sweet release of death, <laughs> but I'm lying there and I felt this immense peace because all the pain was gone and I was just lying face down in the dirt and I was, I was peaceful. Like I was, I was gone. I wasn't even there. And then the next thing I know, there's these two medics standing over me and one of them's like, I need you to sit up and, you know, start drinking. And so I sat up and I started drinking a little bit and started getting some more fluids into me. And they took all my stats. They took my blood sugars. They took my blood pressure. They took my uh, blood ox, SpO2. And they're like, yeah, like everything looks okay. Like there's nothing actually wrong with you. I think you're just super fatigued. You're super dehydrated. You're super malnutrition, but there's nothing wrong with you. And I'm like, okay. And within like 10 minutes, I was standing up and they took my blood pressure again. They're like, yeah, it hasn't changed. It didn't drop when you stood up. So we we don't want to tap you out. Like if, if you're ready to keep going, we're ready to have you keep going. So we took off again and that's we crossed over like the road and then into the hills behind Sedona, the airport loop. And as we were coming down into Sedona, that's I was just so depleted and so exhausted. And that's the point where I started hallucinating really badly and was staggering all over the place and kind of just came down and decided when I found a road that I wasn't going back onto the trails to complete the loop to get into the aid station. I was going to walk the road to do it because it was easy, it was safe, and it was fast. <laughs> and I'm kind of grateful I made that choice because I was literally walking off the sidewalk into traffic. And when I went back out the next morning to complete the loop to the aid station, I realized there was like an 80-foot drop on like a, a trail that was less than half the width of a a sidewalk so I, I probably you know I, I may not have made it <laughs> what's kind of going through your mind at that point uh, I mean I, I can't even tell you because I was just I was so far out of it at that stage like physically and mentally I was so far beyond my training and I just I hadn't it's not that I hadn't slept enough I just hadn't been strategic enough with my sleep and I definitely hadn't eaten enough because I'd been throwing it up and I, I, you know, was dehydrated and I can't even tell you what was in my mind, but I, I was, I was deep inside having a battle against some demons for sure. And that's what I wanted to do. That's what I was out there to achieve. And I was thrust into that and there was no escape from it at this point. You know, I'd hopped on the train and I was going to ride it until the train stopped. Yeah, because I mean, of course, it's not going to be you know comfortable. It's it's just hard to understand sometimes, you know, that what comfort really means to people and how and how that affects them. Okay, cool. Understanding that just because you're not comfortable does not mean that you're not connected. Like there's there's 
there's a, a really big disconnect there. And so bringing yourself to that, that understanding within yourself, and, and there's, there's really only one way to do it, and, and there's two, two aspects to that one way. The one way to do it is through basically surrendering into the moment, and you do that through acceptance and gratitude. You accept what's coming at you and you have gratitude for it. And when you're able to do that, you've completely surrendered to the moment. And all of a sudden, it's no longer miserable. You're just part of the process. Wow. Yeah. You were actually mentioned on the live feed about how you just had to make it to uh, Sedona. And then like, well, no, actually he has to go back. But hey, at least he's willing to not call it quits and go back onto the course. Yeah. So that was when I cut the course. Yeah. And when people hear cutting the course, sometimes it's met with like a lot of skepticism or like some kind of backlashing judgment, you know? Yeah. Like sometimes you just need to make it. Of course, with the intent to, you know, to go back and, you know, retrace those miles, retrace those steps and cool for Air Vipo to be understanding. So I had like when I woke up, so that that night, um, my crew had set up a tent in the aid station at Sedona and I was just so out of it. And I, all I remember say, um, my wife saying, because she was she was frustrated too, rightly so. And, and, you know, she said, having paced that leg, she said to the other two crew members, get him into a tent because I was just sitting in the car, like staring off, spaced out, had no idea what was happening. And she's like, get him into the tent. And somebody helped me down to the tent. I was put into a sleeping bag and I was gone. And then I don't know how long I slept for. I think I was out for, you know, it had to have been at least four hours. The sun was up when I, I woke up and I had no idea where I was in relation to cutoffs or anything. But I, I woke up, the crew were all asleep and I, um, I ambled down, staggered down to the um, the aid station, and I had a really big breakfast. I ate, you know, uh, I ate a big thing of pancakes and eggs and bacon, and just shoveled as much in as I could. And I felt like I came alive on a whole different level. And you know, I was kind of still caught in this little battle I was having within myself. You know, I was facing these fears, the, these old stories. I was facing my my, my demons, but I was winning because now I was ready to go back out. I was ready to continue. So that's when I think the live feed caught up with me. And uh, as I was heading out, I wasn't heading out to continue the course. I was heading out to backtrack the six miles where I broke the course and come back in on the, on the, the airport loop and came back to the aid station. When I got back to the aid station, um, I sat down and had a second plate of pancakes, eggs, and bacon. And <laughs> Then my crew gave me a protein shake and I was, um, you know, I was uh, feeling so full and that's when the diarrhea started, but uh, that wasn't enough to stop me at that point. So I, I loaded up and I went out and I was on the trails he heading like out of Sedona and my diarrhea got so bad at one point, I just, I, I sat down and that's, that's the point where if anyone was watching my tracking, they saw for about three hours I wasn't moving. And it was literally just a stone throw from the aid station in Sedona. I was sitting in this little gulch, a little dry riverbed, and some tree cover overhead. And I was just sitting there. And every, every like 15 minutes or so, I had to get up and go, bathroom break, back sitting down. I'm like, ah, what am I going to do? Like, if I'm here, I'm close to somebody bailing me out. I'm, I'm here to tap out if I can. Like, I can walk back to Sedona. And after about two or three hours, this little voice inside myself said, just keep going. Like, you've got this. You've, you're going to overcome everything you're here to overcome. And I got up and I continued on. 
And as I was walking, that's when I was having the conversation with myself about, you know, needing other people there, needing safety, needing security, needing this blanket of protection, needing the medics to be on hand, needing my crew to be on hand, needing an aid station nearby. If I was in the wilderness too far by myself, like what was going to happen to me? And that was where I, I, I won. I, I found stillness within myself. I overcame all of those old fear stories. And as soon as I did, I came across this uh, trailhead that had a gondola with um, picnic tables and there was a toilet there and I got to resupply all of my toilet paper, which was very handy at that point. <laughs> and I sat down at the picnic table and I called my wife and I was like, I'm feeling good. Like I'm going to, I'm going to push up the Coconino Plateau. I feel, I feel really good right now. And there was these two ladies that sat down and they, uh, they were having a picnic and they're like, can we share your table? And I said, sure, go for it. And I, they, they asked what I was doing and I told them and they, they were just mind blowing and said, can we help you with anything? So I got some ice from them and wrapped it in my, my buff and put it around my neck and they gave me an orange and it was the best thing I'd ever eaten. And I, I ate the orange and took off again, took off down through the river and crossed the river and then up onto the Coconino Plateau, made the big climb out. But at that point, I'd, I'd completely pushed through all of that fear story. I'd completely pushed through all of the limitations and I'd accepted myself in the environment that I was in. I, like I, Maybe a little bit cliche, but I just that was the point where I became a part of everything else. I realized I was no different. I wasn't separate to anything else. And because of that, I uh, found peace. And that's what I had set out to do. And that's in that stillness when I realized my body was pulverized. I was running on no calories for days uh, or minimal calories for days because I couldn't keep anything in. And I just, I hadn't been strategic enough in my plan to race this race because I didn't know what I didn't know. And I needed to call it a day. I could probably keep pushing. I definitely would have made months aid station, but another 80 miles from there to the finish line, like maybe I could have done it. Maybe I couldn't have. But the point is like I would have started risking damaging my body. It was kind of like retreat to fight another day. Yeah. It's always interesting how, you know, things just work out to how they're meant to work out you know those external comforts versus the internal comfort yeah exactly and that, i mean that's a big thing too especially along that course with how the navajo and the hopi natives you know who had that land i mean it was absolutely amazing the connection i gained with the hopi like i, I i've always had somewhat of a, a connection ever since i you know i very first went to arizona with the the, the navajo or the Dene. but um you know, when it, when it came to the Hopi, I really feel like I, I grounded in a connection with them on this trip and particularly afterwards going back to Sedona and, and spending a few days in a, uh, like a nice VRBO in, um, in Sedona, listening to the coyotes of a night and going down to this little river every, every day and having a swim in the river and all the red rocks around. It was just such a magical time. But I really, really started to feel this connection to, to the Hopi. And yeah, it's just, I'm, I'm still unpacking that and what it means for me and for, you know, the bigger picture, but it, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Cause it kind of seems part of that. Cause I know the Hopis are big with the hydraulic cycle of life, you know, cause we're connected to every living thing from, you know, the, the ground, the plants, the oceans, the stars, all of it. Yeah, Exactly. I guess coming into a DNF, you know, it's such a hard decision, but especially when 
you're going through not just the physical pain, that's kind of a given, but you also have like the mental barrier that you've now accomplished. You know, the interest, the interesting thing about that is if I had have made the choice to tap out leading up to Sedona or any time around when I was really hurting and suffering, it would have been an incredibly difficult choice to make and it would have been full of regret. When I made the choice that I did, there was, it, was easy, it was easy to make and there was no regret. And I, I think that that's because I wasn't making it from a mind level. I was making it from a, a heart level. I knew in my heart that my race was over and there was no conflict with that choice. So is it hard to DNF? I think if you are in conflict, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, if you're choosing to tap out just because it hurts, yes, it's a very hard choice to make. For me at that point, it was the easiest decision in the world. And it's not because I was trying to escape from anything. It's because I knew my race was over. Yeah, because with no belt buckle, but you coming out next year? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited for next year's race because this year was kind of like me learning some things, learning the, the like learning what I need to thrive over 200 plus miles learning how to strategically plan sleep and food and, you know, all the human type stuff, bathroom breaks, all, all the human stuff while running 250 miles. That's what this, this gave me. It kind of gave me a blueprint for that and how my body performs at various stages. But more to the point, this one was about me taking a journey. Like, and this one was taking a journey to understanding myself in this pain, in this fear, in this suffering. And that was the bigger goal. And with that goal, you know, that, that was well and truly achieved. Next year, I'm going to race to fucking race. <laughs> yeah, that's the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, hey, we'll wrap it up with, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. How did the Cocodona 250 go? And I loved it. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I, I, I think that it was all good. There was no bad you know, I was experiencing layers of ugly, but that's just part of it. Like that, even that was good, you know, like it had to happen. There was a lot of purging happening. It was almost like doing an ayahuasca journey in many respects. There was the visuals and hallucinations. There was the vomiting. There was the purging. It was such a beautiful experience. And I look back with nothing but fondness. Even my DNF and the way that I choose to, chose to end the race for myself where and when I chose to end the race for myself, like I am really happy with the, the way the race unfolded. And there's, there's no part of me that's pretending that something, like I'm not, I'm not making myself believe anything that's not true. Where I stand in relation to this race right now is it fills my heart with absolute glee and i am so excited to get back out there not just to race cocodona again next year and the community and the the crews and the aid stations and the, all the support staff and all the event organizers and everything like it's all this, this giant family of people not just that but i'm excited to get in the rv and go out and run these trails and and you know integrate more into the desert and, and the high desert the altitude and the dust and the trails i can't wait to get back out there yeah, because it's, you know, not about the ego, but what about the soul need? Well, exactly. And I think if I had have pushed at the point where I found that stillness towards the finish line just for a buckle, that was ego. Like, like I said, you know, retreat and fight another day. You know, I, I had punched through the walls in my mind. 
I was listening to my body and my body said it was done at that point. I think anything else would have been ego. Yeah, it's a good point. But yeah, Sawyer, I appreciate this. Yeah, no, it's fun. I really enjoyed it too. So, heck yeah, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, brother. I will catch up with you real soon. Cool. Bye. So there we have it for episode 27 of the Florida Trail Runners podcast. See Sawyer in the Cocodona 250. But also so much more about barefoot running, mental awareness, being connected to not only to not only your mental and physical self, but also the world around us and everything it has to offer. There's definitely a lot to ponder about to that one. So, I hope you all had fun, and until next time, happy trails.